0: what's happening Hume Lake How was your day yeah all right good all right nice it's nice to see you guys if you have your Bible you can turn to Daniel chapter four uh, while you're looking and finding Daniel chapter four uh, let me I just want to, I'm just interested so let me inquire of you how many of you feel like I mean I know we've only been here a couple of days but how many of you feel like you like you are hundred percent for sure that you have met the person you're gonna marry. Is that, have you got that sewn up yet? Yeah, really? One, two, (laughs) all right, okay, who else? Yeah, okay, now here's the thing, here's the thing. Next question is, okay, put your hands down. Now for those of you who feel 100% for sure that you found the person you're gonna marry, uh, we've seen your hands. Now the rest of the crowd, when you saw the person up the row from you raise their hand, how many of you are worried right now that that person thinks you're the one they're gonna marry? Yeah, yeah, I hear that too. It's a little nerve wracking. You don't wanna be the target of that kind of pressure. It's not, not fair. So here we come to Daniel chapter four and we've been looking at the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the story of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and when we come to Daniel chapter four there's a couple of interesting things we wanna look at tonight as we go through but I wanna give you just a couple of clues or some interesting facts even just about this chapter. Interesting, uh, unlike the rest of the, uh, of the book of Daniel, this particular book is written in a different language, and you wouldn't know that because you have English translations in front of you. So uh, when you read it, it just looks all like English. But interestingly, Daniel chapter four is written in a different language, and it's written in the first person from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. What we're getting in Daniel chapter four that's slightly different than the rest of the book is basically like, almost like a journal entry, or in some ways a record from Nebuchadnezzar himself about something he experienced. And what he experienced uh, has highs and lows. I don't know what your, uh, what your most embarrassing moment is at this point in your life. We've all kind of had embarrassing moments. Daniel chapter four represents a moment of humiliation for King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and if you've ever had an embarrassing moment or a humiliating moment, you know that's not necessarily something you brag about. My, I'm gonna, uh, my most embarrassing moment, I'll tell you guys, happened when I was a freshman in high school. I, uh, I think I told you guys before, my parents were divorced when I was in middle school, and so I ended up changing schools uh, I started a brand new school uh, with brand new people my freshman year, and I'm trying to make friends, I'm trying to get to know people, and uh, I've always been a musician, so I joined the marching band, but I play piano, and as you may know, you can't play the piano in the marching band because it's too heavy to carry. So uh, they put me on the drum line, right, and so I'm part of the percussion line. Have we got any marching band people in the room? Where are you at? <laughs> These are, my, these are my peeps right here, these, these marching band nerds, that's like my crowd right there, right? So okay, so I'm in the marching band and I'm playing on the drum line and we play all the football games, we do all the practices and then everything's working up To Arizona State University Band Day. I grew up in Phoenix, and on ASU Band Day, that's the day when all the marching bands come and they put on their best performance in front of these nationally recognized judges, and you're hoping to get a high score, right? You can get an A, which is the best possible score for a marching band, you can get a one, a two, or a three. The three is the worst score, Uh, A is the best, right? And my school, the particular school I went to in Phoenix, had only ever gotten A's. Like we were a, a band that had a great reputation, so we've been practicing like crazy. Freshman year in high school, they had me playing cymbals, crash cymbals. And if you know anything about crash cymbals, in a marching band, what you're dealing with is basically like a big metal disc, right? You can see cymbals here on the drum kits like that. Uh, there's a hole drilled in the middle, and then they put a leather strap through the hole. You tie a knot on the inside. You hold onto the leather straps. And then there's two ways to play a crash cymbal in a marching band. The first way is the way I saw somebody even just do the gesture. First way you do it is by crashing them together. When you hear the Star-Spangled Banner or whatever, that's what you're hearing like, Ksh, 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 like that, but what you might not know is that in a marching band, you can also play crash cymbals, like a hi-hat cymbal, which is the symbol you see uh, over here on the side, where you've got one on the top and one on the bottom. And so you put your cymbals together like this, and they're horizontal. And in order to, to make those available to the snare drummers, the cymbal player then has to march all the routines in reverse, right? So you have to turn around basically and learn all the field routines backwards so that you can face the rest of the drum line and they can play their snare drums and the cymbals, right? That's all a setup. So by the time we get to ASU band day, there are other bands that have gone, we've got our uniforms on, we're standing on the sideline, right at the 50 yard line, waiting for the drum major to blow the whistle for us to walk out on the field. We're at Arizona State University Stadium. Uh, You know, there's like 10,000 people in the stands. And uh, we're waiting at parade rest, we're waiting, and then uh, we're, like, we're, they, they give us the two-minute warning, and they tell us we're about to take the field, we're gonna play three songs. And as I'm standing, there's a freshman. Uh, the worst possible thing happens. My right-hand symbol, comes unknotted. That knot in the leather strap comes unknotted. Well, the symbol's heavy, so when that thing comes untied, the symbol just slides off the strap, it falls to the ground, it makes this horrendous noise. And immediately, I've got all the upperclassmen, the juniors and seniors, who are cursing at me, you stupid bleepity-bleeping freshman, you dumped him, you know, we've been doing, working hard, you're gonna ruin all our chances, right? So I panic, and I lean down real quick to get the symbol. and when I do, I hear a noise that's worse than the sound of the cymbal crash. I hear the sound of my pants ripping, and uh, when I say my pants ripped, I don't just mean I got a little tear in my black, tight, polyester band pants. Uh, My pants literally ripped from the bottom of my zipper all the way to my back belt loop, right? So what I essentially have now are two separate legs attached by a zipper, okay? That's what I'm wearing, and uh, as soon as that happens, like, I know something bad has happened because I can feel the breeze, right? (laughs) The guys behind me are like, dude, dude, we can see your whitey tidy underpants, right? And I was wearing like regular old Hanes, like briefs, whatever, and uh, there's nothing I can do, right? I mean, there's no way to like fix this. Now, just at that moment, I get my symbol retied, and I'm like, I guess we just have to, like the show must go on or whatever, right? So the drum major blows the whistle, we march out on the field, I can feel the breeze. The drum major counts us in for the first four beats and that's when I realize that all three of the songs we're doing do not require a crash symbol like this. All three of the songs we're doing require a hi-hat symbol like this, which means my first four counts are one, two, three, four. And I show my underwear to 10,000 people in the stands at Arizona State University, right? Not my favorite day. Thank you so much, thank you so much. I'll be signing underpants in the back afterwards. Uh, When we get back to school on Monday, that took place on a Saturday, we get back to school on the Monday and my teacher has a video recording of the performance and the video recording, he puts it up on the big screen and the judges have microphones and they give us notes, right? So he puts it in, we're watching on the big screen and it sounds like this, the judges go, flute players. I love your pitch. It sounds beautiful. Trumpets, way to go with those high knees. Keep those high knees up. Keep them up. Drumline, nice underwears. I'm like, no, <laughs> the worst, right? Not not a moment that I want to live forever with, right? Not a moment I want to talk about, although I, I just told, you know, a thousand people in here. But the rest, of my, the rest of my time in high school, people reminded me all the time of the time I plant, my pants ripped into, right? It was a reputation I couldn't live down. It's interesting and worth noting that in Daniel chapter 4, this isn't a story about Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel is telling. It's not a story about Nebuchadnezzar that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are telling. This is a story about Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar is telling, and the reason why that's significant and important as we get started tonight is that I want you to understand that he learned something in this situation, and he wants us to hear it from him. He wants us to learn from his mistake. So as we dive into this tonight, let's just walk through it. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, by his own account, has another dream. He's already had a dream. Remember, that was from Daniel chapter 2. Now we get to Daniel chapter 4. He has another dream. The first dream bothered him. The second dream, it says, terrifies him. Here's what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. That's us. He says, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these... I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus... Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you were able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, so here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that terrifies him, and he tells us the dream, and maybe it doesn't seem terrifying to you, but let's just kind of walk through real quick because I want you to see what's happening. The dream he has is of a massive, beautiful, fruitful tree, and what he says is this tree can be seen from everywhere on the earth, and in fact, all the creatures of the earth come, and they take shade under the tree, and they are fed from the tree. In essence, what he sees is a tree that sustains and provides for all life upon the earth. And his dream is a representation of his perception of himself. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you know, at the end of the day, I'm kind of a big deal. At the end of the day, King Nebuchadnezzar is the one that provides shade for people. I provide food for people. No matter who you are on the earth, you have probably heard about me because I'm a, I'm a kind of a powerful guy who provides for everyone, and everyone lives under my shade. Nebuchadnezzar sees himself... In the place of God, essentially. Saying, I'm the one from whom all life is sustained. As the dream continues, there's an angel. He describes him as a holy one that comes and curses the tree. He chops the tree down. He doesn't uproot it, but he caps it. Which means that while there is a punishment here, it's not an eternal punishment, right? He's not ruining the tree. He's just stopping and, and sort of stifling the tree for a season, He cuts off the branches, and the watcher says, this is so that people will know that there is a God in heaven, and he gives the kingdoms of the earth to whoever he will, right? We chop down this tree so that the tree will not be confused about who God is, right? And he says, the mind of a beast will be given to him, and his face will be wet with the dew of the field for seven seasons. Now, some of that's confusing, but in essence, what God is saying through this dream to, to Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll talk about this in a second, in essence, what he's saying is, Nebuchadnezzar, you're confused because you think that you are the one who's providing for all of the earth. You think that you are in the place of God and that everybody else is an animal that you provide for. I'm going to show you, Nebuchadnezzar, God says, that you aren't the tree. You're one of the animals who needs shade and food and protection, right? Right? He's helping Nebuchadnezzar to understand his proper place. Now here's what we know, even by the first few paragraphs of the chapter. We know from the first few paragraphs of the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson because he writes to you and me all these years later, and he says, I'm writing and telling you this story, even though it's embarrassing to me, I'm writing and telling you this story because I want you to understand the good things that God has done for me. Well, that's an interesting perspective because what ends up happening for Nebuchadnezzar is that he loses his kingdom, he loses his power, he loses his control, he loses his mind, and he goes outside of the kingdom and lives like a wild animal for seven seasons, right? And yet he can reflect upon it in hindsight and say, God did something good for me. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? God blessed me. Well, what does he mean? What he means is that God punished him for his good. i let your brain wrap around that for a second. What Nebuchadnezzar has learned is that God corrected him, and even though it was gross and hard and painful and difficult, it was actually a good thing God was doing. That might be hard for some of you to make it compute in the room, because when you think about correction or you think about discipline, you don't think about it as being a good thing, you think about it as being a bad thing, and it makes you frustrated, right? But what we are seeing in Daniel chapter 4 is the continuation of a roller coaster. We've seen in these first four chapters that Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, God is great, but then he builds a statue, right? And he says, Oh, there's no God except for Daniel's God. And then he continues to think of himself as the provider for all the nations. So while Nebuchadnezzar has made some professions or acknowledgments that God is something, he certainly hasn't surrendered his life to God. And he continues to have this pride and arrogance that is pervasive, and God is transforming him through this disciplinary measure here. There's two things that I want to happen in the course of the time we have tonight. I want to talk to two different audiences. The first audience I want to talk to are the people in the room who are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We've already been talking about this again and again over the last two days, but there are some of you in the room who are followers of Jesus. At some point in your life, you gave your life to Christ, and now you are his emissary and ambassador. You're one of those people who has dual citizenship. You are both a kingdom, uh, member of the kingdom of God, but you're also a citizen of the cities in which you live and the schools in which you attend and the places where you work, and you are called to reveal Christ in those places. The conversation that I want you to see or the thing I want you to see in Daniel chapter four is the way in which Daniel gives this terrible news to his captor because it's incredibly instructive to me and I think it'll be instructive to you as well. There's a second group of people in the room though that I don't want to miss tonight and the second group of people in the room are the people who were either on the fence about Jesus or people who've decided that they're not interested in Jesus, or people who've decided that Christianity is a sham, or it's fake, or what, you know I mean? We've probably got some atheists in the room. We've probably got some agnostics in the room, which means like people who are undecided. We might have people who used to be church goers and attenders, but they've decided Christianity is not for them. There's a whole bunch of people in the room, I know, who aren't followers of Jesus, and I I think I said it on the first morning, I'm super glad you're here. I'm glad you're tracking. I want you to look at Daniel 4 tonight, and I want you to understand that some of the things that are happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life are true of all of us, and I want you to ask yourself as we work our way through if there isn't something for you to see in this text as well, right? Maybe something about the nature of all mankind, including, you know, me. I, I want you to see the solidarity and brokenness that we have here. But as we begin and as we walk through it, now Nebuchadnezzar has said to Daniel, tell me what the dream is. And there are three key things that I want you to see in Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who came into Daniel's hometown and destroyed it. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that took Daniel and his friends captive and dragged them away from their homeland. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who threw his friends into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who took some of their holy items and stole them and put them in the temple of his pagan god. Nebuchadnezzar is his oppressor. And yet I want you to see the way Daniel responds to him. Pick it up with me, if you will, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, what what will you tell me about this dream and its interpretation? Here's the first thing out of Daniel's mouth in, in verse 19. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you, And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The first thing I want you to see is that Daniel's response to this declaration of judgment by God, Daniel's response is one of compassion for his captor. Does that seem weird to you? This could have been a moment for Daniel to be like, yeah, it finally came. The day is finally here when vengeance will arise, you know? Like this could have been a day for Daniel to be like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember when you wrecked my town? You remember when you killed my friends? You remember when you threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into that fire, you jerk? God's going to smash you now, and I've been waiting for it for years. (laughs) Ha, 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 right? That isn't what happens. Daniel doesn't revel in this message. He doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't point his finger in Nebuchadnezzar's face. It says that actually when Daniel hears the dream, it sets him back, and he's alarmed. He's bothered by it so much so that he can't speak. He's so bothered by this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had that he goes silent. Nebuchadnezzar has to say, hey, whatever's going on inside you, it's okay for you to tell me. And Daniel comes back to him and says, my king, I wish the news that I'm about to deliver, I was delivering to your enemy and not to you. I wish I was about to give this bad news to somebody else and not to you, Nebuchadnezzar. He responds with empathy and compassion for this wicked king. And I just want you to see it because sometimes what I see in the world today, and now I'm talking to those of you who are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Sometimes what I see in the world today, and it boggles my mind, are Christians, Christians in the world, who seem super eager to see sinners punished. Christians who appear on social media and in the news and in their churches and around the world to be going like, I can't wait for lightning to fall from the sky, right? And hurt all the sinners. What's bonkers about that to me, number one, is that that reveals nothing about the heart of Christ, If Jesus had wanted us all to be destroyed for our sin, he would have stayed away from the earth instead of coming to redeem us. But what also boggles my mind about a heart of a Christian that would seek the destruction of sinners is that every Christian is also a sinner. Right, So the moment that you look at the wicked people you know, or the moment that you look at the people who don't believe the things you believe, or the moment you look at all the other broken people in your neighborhood, whatever category they fall in for you, and you start to pass judgment on them, remember that you're passing judgment on broken people, and if you're passing judgment on broken people, you got to turn that finger and point it right back at yourself, because you also are a broken person. What I love about Daniel's response here in verses 19 and following is this compassion for the pagan king. There is no desire on his part to see Nebuchadnezzar punished. It's very different than what we see with Jonah, right? You guys know the story of Jonah? God comes to Jonah and he says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell the people if they don't shape up, I'm going to destroy their town. And Jonah's like, uh, wait, let me get this right. You want me to tell the Ninevites, my enemies, that if they don't clean up their act, you're gonna destroy them? Well, for what it's worth, I want you to destroy them, and so I'm not gonna tell them the message, right? And you know that story of Jonah, he runs the opposite direction, he ends up in the belly of a fish, all that stuff, you know why that happens? Because he wants his enemies to be destroyed. The book of Jonah is all about a guy who should have had grace and compassion because God had had grace and compassion on him, and instead what he wanted was wrath for other people. If you're sitting in the room tonight and you're a follower of Jesus and you're eager or anxious for wrath to fall on others, you have misunderstood what Jesus has done for you. You've misunderstood what Jesus has done for you. What we see here is compassion, a heart that hurts for and with the suffering. Do you have a heart that hurts for and with the suffering? Daniel has a heart that hurts for and with the suffering even when they deserve it. Here's the deal. Does Nebuchadnezzar deserve this punishment? You bet he does, right? Is he prideful? Is he arrogant? Has he fallen in and out of faithfulness with God? Yes. Does he deserve the punishment? Yes, he does. And Daniel is still compassionate towards him and wishes that the message were for someone else. What we see in Daniel is a heart that hurts with and for the suffering, even when they deserve it. And the reason for that is that he also deserves it. Let me just refresh your memory and remind you, why is it that Daniel and his friends are in Babylon? they there as a punishment, right? Daniel has the ability, and wisely so, to be able to say, I'm here because me and my people were bad people and we made a mistake, and now you're gonna be punished for your sin, and I know how that feels, right? I know how it feels. I'm in this together with you. A heart that hurts for and with the suffering, even when they deserve it, because we also deserve it. Now, in order for you to understand that, we also have to talk a little bit about sin and the fact that sin is uh, universal. And admittedly, sin is kind of a weird word, so let me define it a little for you. When you hear people talk about sin, uh, sometimes be, it just seems like a churchy word, right? Some of you in the room who didn't grow up in church, you hear it, sin and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. It can feel a little bit like uh, like just the big things, you know, like uh, bank robbery and murder and, you know, like international espionage and whatever. Like uh, the Bible actually teaches sin is really simple to understand. And in order to understand sin, you have to understand our, our created purpose. So let me just back up one step. Each and every person in the room, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are uh, black or white, no matter where you come from, no matter what social class, no matter what level of education, all of us were created with the same purpose. We're all identical in purpose. The Bible teaches in its entirety that the purpose of man is that we would worship. We're built to glorify God with our thoughts, to honor God with our attitudes, to honor God with our words and our actions. We are built as, like, basically like worship engines. And our lives prove that out. So if you have a question about that, look at your life. You are glorifying something all day long, right? Some of the time during the day, you're glorifying God, which you were built to do. Some of the time, you're glorifying, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or your favorite sports uh, team or you're glorifying your favorite rock band or you're glorifying money or power or sex or fame or influence or whatever, right? We're always worshiping something, always. The reason we're always worshiping something is because we were built for worship. That's what we're built for. So from the ground up, we were all built to glorify God. Sin, just so you understand what we're talking about, sin is any time we fail to do the thing we were built to do. Anytime you and I fail to glorify God with our thoughts or our words or our actions or our attitudes, the Bible calls that sin. In fact, it's interesting. Like Sometimes when people think about Satan, they think, oh, Satan's out there and he's trying to get everybody to you know, put on a black robe and get pentagram tattoos and dance around a fire and listen to Ozzy Osbourne and kill chickens and stuff, right? Satan doesn't want to turn you into a Satanist. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Our enemy, Satan, is real, and you know what he wants to do? You know how he's successful? If he can get you and me to worship anything other than Jesus, he wins, right? And that's actually fairly easy because the rest of society is gauged toward getting us to worship all kinds of stupid stuff, the Bible teaches that sin is any failure to glorify God. It's a falling short of the glory of God. In fact, Romans 3, if you want to look that up later, Romans 3:23 says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have failed to do the thing we' were built to do. All of us at one point or another have failed to glorify God." And the problem with sin, not only is it pervasive, not only is every person on the planet who's ever lived a sinner, But the Bible also teaches in Romans chapter 6 that the consequence of sin or the punishment of sin is death and separation from God. So everybody's a sinner, right? It's not just the bank robbers. It's not just the murderers. All of us have fallen short of the purpose for which we were created, the worship of God. And because of that, we're all separated from God because he's holy and we're rendered spiritually dead because of that, right? Daniel in this passage has compassion With Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar is a sinner and so is Daniel, right? He's able to say, I wish I could give this message to someone else. I wish I could give it to your enemy. But in those moments where you and I are judgmental towards sinners, or when we're anxious to see God's wrath fall upon them, when we're eager to see them smitten or whatever you wanna call it, right? When you become hateful towards people who are broken, there is a hypocrisy in you because you yourself are broken. You're condemning people who are exactly like you, but maybe just in a different category. Does that make sense? The people of God, the ambassadors of God have to be people of compassion who find solidarity in brokenness with broken people, because it's us too. Not only do we see compassion, let's keep going. First thing we see is compassion. Let's keep reading. Daniel says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew up and became strong so that its top reaches to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It's you, O king, who've grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him? This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you'll be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. You think this was an easy message for Daniel to deliver? He's got to say some kind of tough stuff there. He's got to look at his captor and say, you're about to lose your kingdom and you're about to lose your mind and you're about to lose the respect of all the other kingdoms of the world because you're about to go bonkers crazy and live in the woods like a wild animal. you think that was an easy message to declare? It definitely wasn't. The second thing I want you to see that I find impressive in Daniel's response is that he delivers the message not only with compassion, but he delivers the message with clarity, right? And clarity is a little tricky because sometimes we're tempted to water the message down to make it a little bit easier to deal with, right? We're tempted to water the message down. It's tempting as a speaker to want to get up in front of people and instead of telling you that you're all sinners and that you're all broken and that because of that sin you're separated from God, it would be way easier for me to get up here and be like, let me give you five key ways to have fun at camp, right? Or let me give you five key ways to find the person of your dreams, right? Let me give you five key ways to be a great human. I don't want to necessarily have to get up here and say to you, hey, you and I are busted, and that separates us from God, and we'll be separated from him for eternity. That's a hard message to declare. But I don't do anybody favors if I water that message down. Does that make sense? If I avoid clarity. There's something beautiful in the fact that Daniel doesn't pull the punches. He just puts it out there. I remember one time I had my kids at Target, and, uh, and they were little, and we're in the toy section, and I'd already told my kids we weren't buying anything, you know, but my son Jack, who was little at the time, he goes, uh, I want that truck, and I was like, well, you know, I appreciate that, but we, uh, we're not buying any toys today. We're just looking. So, um, you know, like, let's keep going. And he goes, I want the truck. And I was like, hey, dude, do, like, do not raise your voice to me. Like, have you guys ever been in Target and you've heard that family where there's like one kid that's screaming? That's my family. We were at Target together. It's so fun. Um, anyway, my son Jack is like, he starts to go, I want the truck. I want that truck, and I leaned over and I was like, dude, we're not gonna have like a big, (laughs) like noisy mess in the Target. If you can't be quiet and you can't be nice, then daddy's gonna take you out to the car, and you and I'll sit out in the car, and mommy will finish the shopping. And he goes, I want the truck, I want the truck! So I scoop up my kid, right, and I'm walking. Of course, the toy section's in the back of the Target, right? So I gotta carry this screaming kid out of the Target. People are looking at us. About halfway through the Target, he starts to change the thing he's yelling, and instead of yelling, I want the truck, he goes, please don't lock me in the car again! It's hot in the car! Children can't breathe in the car! No! And I'm like, I've never locked this kid in the car. I'm going to be sitting in there too. We're going to have the air conditioner on, you know, like, come on. But, like, people are looking at me, and they're like, this dad is a bad person, you know. (laughs) Well, why does he do that? We don't like being reprimanded, and we'll do anything we can to sort of get out of that correction. So it becomes difficult to give a message of clarity because sometimes the message that has to be conveyed is hard to hear. There are some of you in the room tonight who are not followers of Jesus, And the moment that I, a guy you barely know, you know from a couple, of, you know a couple stupid stories about my pants being ripped and whatever, but a guy like me who you don't even know gets up and says you're a sinner, that you failed to do the thing you're built to do, that you're gonna be separated from God, I guarantee you that some of you, the moment I said it, you're like, this dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Or maybe worse, maybe you're like, this guy's a jerk. It makes me not wanna tell you that, right? It makes me not wanna tell you that because I don't want you to think I'm a jerk. I want you to think I'm a nice guy. I don't want you to think I'm a guy who locks his kids in his car, right? But it doesn't do you any good for me not to tell you the truth as it's revealed in the Bible. And if I water that message down, I'm actually hurting you. Does that make sense? Uh, Think for a second about the swimming pool across the way we got these lifeguards at Hume. They're awesome. Lifeguards are amazing at Hume. But imagine you're swimming in the pool, and all of a sudden the whistles start to go off, right? And you're like, what's going on? They're like, get out of the pool, get out of the pool. And you look, and there's like a, there's like a guy that's like floating face down, right? It looks like he's dead, maybe. And they clear the pool, and the lifeguard dives in. she got that floaty thing. She grabs the guy. She pulls him up onto the side of the deck. She rolls him over. He's, like, turning blue. He's not breathing, right? She looks at him. She can tell this guy's dying. Everybody's moved out of the way. People are, like, crying. People start to pray, whatever. She leans down, and she just starts to, like, French kiss this dude for all she's worth, right? Now, listen. This is a gross story. I'm, I'm admitting that. Uh, here's the thing. It doesn't matter how passionate that kiss is. It doesn't matter how good at kissing she is. It doesn't matter if that dying guy desperately moments before was wishing he could kiss that lifeguard. In that moment, she's not doing him any favors. Because he doesn't need her affection. He doesn't need her romance. He doesn't need her passion. He doesn't need her kisses. He needs the oxygen in her lungs. And if she doesn't give him that, she doesn't care about him. If she doesn't give him air, whatever else she does is cruel. If she doesn't give him air, whatever else she does is cruel. Listen to this. I could get up here. I could give you five tips for having a great week at camp, or being a great kid, or having a great time in high school. But if I don't look at you and say, look, just like Nebuchadnezzar's broken, and just like Daniel and his friends are broken, and just like your camp speaker's broken, and all your friends are broken, and every human being that's ever lived is broken, you're broken. The Bible teaches that we're sinners and that sin separates us from God and that should worry you because something has to be done, right? I love that Daniel is a man of compassion. I also love that Daniel is a man of clarity. And then I wanna show you one last thing. Come back to Daniel chapter four with me. He says in verse 25, he says, this is happening so that you uh, will know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26 And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So you'll get your kingdom back as soon as you recognize that you're not God, that there is a God and it's not you. This is verse 27. This is the part I want you to catch. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is a really weird thing Daniel says at the end of his speech. He, he communicates um, the interpretation of the dream, and then he adds his own advice. So the third point I want to make for you tonight is this. Not only does Daniel communicate with compassion, not only does he communicate with clarity, but the third thing I see that I find surprising is that he includes his own counsel. Counsel. Right? He includes his own counsel, and here's why that's interesting. What he says to Nebuchadnezzar is, God is going to punish you, and he's going to take away your kingdom, he's going to chase you out in the field, you're going to be living like a wild maniac for a while, and then, and then you'll get your kingdom back when you realize you're not as big of a deal as you think you are. And he says, so can I give you a little advice? And I don't know if his tone changes or not, but he says, maybe instead of feeling like you're such a big deal, maybe you should start practicing righteousness. What does he mean? Righteousness is essentially glorifying God with your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. He says, maybe practice righteousness and show mercy to the people who are oppressed. Because who knows, he says, maybe God will show you mercy. You know what Daniel's doing here? Here's what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar. I know who God is, and I know what God has said, but I don't know what God will do, (laughs) right? It's the very same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said in Daniel chapter 3. We know who God is. We know what he said, but we don't know whether we'll live or die in your furnace. Now he says to Nebuchadnezzar, I know who God is. He wants you to be a king that shows mercy to the oppressed. He wants you to be a human being that does good instead of bad. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he won't do the thing he said he's going to do. Maybe he'll go easy on you. Now, for what it's worth, God doesn't do that, right? Nebuchadnezzar gets the punishment exactly the way God says he's gonna get it. But what I love about this third point tonight, and I want you to miss it, especially if you're ambassador of Jesus, is that you probably have friends who don't believe in what you believe. They don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in Jesus or whatever, and and it might be tempting for you to write those people off for some reason. You might go, oh, these people don't believe in Jesus, so I'm I'm not gonna mess around with them anymore, or I tried to share my faith and they didn't want to have anything to do with it, so I'm just gonna move on to other friends. No, 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 the people that you know who don't share your faith They still need you in their life. They need great friends who are loyal and kind and generous and gracious, who are warm and forgiving, who represent the character of Jesus. Your friends who don't believe what you believe, your friends who hate what you believe, still need you. Because hopefully you're conducting yourself like Jesus, and people like that in this world are crazy rare, right? Daniel says, hey, can I throw in my two cents? I'm hoping that maybe God won't do this whole thing. I know who he is, I know what he said, but maybe if you change your ways, God will go easy on you. I love the fact that Daniel injects that because what's he doing? He's just demonstrating that he cares about this king. Hume Lake, can I just ask you a question? I'm talking now to the Christian kids in the room. Man, I don't think the people in this world anymore think that Christians care about them. I think we've blown it. I think people have a distorted image of who Jesus is, and it's not because they've read it in the Bible and misunderstood it. It's because we put him on display in such a shoddy way. I think there are probably people in your schools and on your softball team and at the gym where you work out, and they know you're a Christian, and they think you don't give a rip about them, and they're not guessing. You've given the impression that you don't care about them. We've got to stop it. We have to repair the image of Jesus where we have messed it up. We have to repair the distortion of the representation of Christ. And we do that through compassion and clarity and counsel. Daniel beautifully models what it looks like to be a prophet in the world with people that don't believe the same thing we do. He says, here's the truth of what's coming. He's very clear. He doesn't water it down. Here's the truth of what's coming, but I love you, and I'll do anything I can to try and make this better for you. That's the posture that we should have in this world. That's the posture we should have in hopes that what we'll see, and here's here's what we're gonna see too about the whole chapter. The whole chapter is written from a perspective of Nebuchadnezzar going, I didn't get it at first, but eventually I got it. I didn't get it at first, but eventually I got it. I'm gonna tell you this story that's kind of embarrassing to me and I'm gonna tell it to you because I want you to hear about the good things God did for me. He comes eventually to recognize that God is good and that even his justice is good. The book of Hebrews tells us that God only corrects those that he loves and considers to be his sons, that he only disciplines those that are his children, right? God is showing compassion through this correction. I've said already tonight that all of us are sinners, so now I wanna talk one more time to those of you who would consider yourself either non-Christian or maybe anti-Christian or just kinda, you're not really sure or maybe don't care. Again, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're still listening. But I want to say this to you. When I tell you that you're a sinner, it's hard to say because I just want us to be friends, right? But it's important for me to say it because you're like me and I also am broken and I needed somebody to rescue me. I couldn't do it myself. The thing I want to finish with tonight, and we'll talk about it more tomorrow, is that if, as I said to you that you're a sinner and you're separated from God, if that bothered you, if you didn't like that, if it made you feel like, I don't want to be separated from God. Like, what's this talking about? I just want to articulate one last thing to you, and it's this. God isn't okay with you being separated from him either. God isn't okay with you being separated from him either. You know that God made you, that God created you just like you are, that he created you unique, that there's nobody else on the planet just like you, and that he created you to have a relationship with him. God is not satisfied when anybody is in broken relationship with him. He's not satisfied when anybody is using their life for less than what it was created for, right? Right? And so what I want you to hear me say tonight, if you're agnostic or you're atheist or you're a person who's maybe post-Christian or whatever, if you're in one of those categories, I just want to remind you, and you can choose to believe me or not, but I want to remind you that God isn't satisfied with your relationship with him, and he desperately wants you to know him, that he desperately wants to have this relationship with you restored, and he will do whatever he can, which ultimately meant sending his son Jesus to come and take the sin of the world upon himself. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Tonight, as we wrap up, let me just do two things. I wanna invite those of you in the room, no matter who you are, to think about your own brokenness. To think about your own brokenness, not for the sake of working yourself up into a bunch of sadness and whatever, but for the sake of just recognizing how blessed you are to have received the grace of God. And then I want you to go one step further to think about the people that you know in this world who never heard about the grace of God people that are looking for the truth and you have the opportunity to reveal it, are there places where you need to renew your commitment to be compassionate? Places where maybe you need to renew your commitment to be clear? Places where maybe you need to renew your commitment to provide counsel to people who don't share the same values you share but desperately need your voice in their life? I'm hoping that as we finish tonight, you will slow down and just take a moment to be still that you'll listen to the spirit of God speak to you because there might be places along the way here where there's correction that needs to happen in order that you can be an emissary, an ambassador like Daniel is in this pagan place. We understand what sin is. We understand that all of us are sinners. And we also understand that all of us can be redeemed from that sin by the very same God in the very same way. And that reality is the thing that propels us. Remember we talked last night about love is the motivator. Our love for our fellow man and our fellow woman is the thing that propels us both to recognize our own sin and the needs of other people. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you for your word, always. Thankful for the opportunity to speak frankly and candidly. And I'm thankful in this text for Daniel's example. It would be easy to race through a passage like this and just go... Nebuchadnezzar was in trouble and Daniel told him, but I love that when we slow down and really look at it, what we see is that Daniel was intentional, and even though he didn't know the name of Jesus, the way that Daniel conducts himself in Daniel chapter 4 is incredibly Jesus-like. Thank you for the picture of Christ we see in Daniel chapter 4, as Daniel is a beautiful example of what an ambassador of the kingdom of God looks like the compassion that he shows to his king, even though his king deserves what's coming. It's a beautiful thing to behold. Help us to, to take that up and to carry it into our world as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.